Jonathan Oppenheimer, it's really good to have you in our brand new studio. Oh, thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. A a heartwarming subject, Uh, not for your family. You lost your wife nearly five years ago. Yep, coming up. Uh, And Jennifer was well known throughout uh, NGOs in South Africa, maybe not really to the broader society. She wasn't really that high profile, but an American, Harvard educated. Well, I'll boast on her behalf, Harvard and then Harvard Law School and a Fulbright scholar in between, also spoke Chinese. And how did you get to snag her? (laughs) I went questing and I was incredibly lucky. I I met her when she was at law school and she literally blew my socks off. And as as her father said to me a few years after we got married, I spent 10 years paying for my daughter to learn and write, uh, to speak and write Chinese to go and live in Africa. (laughs) (laughs) And that was a passion of hers, certainly from everything I've read. Yes, uh, she, uh, I mean, she was a, an incredible historian, an incredible, uh, an incredible. I think the best way to describe her is she was insatiably curious about everything. And uh, if you want to succeed in anything in life, you've got to be curious. And so she, she really threw herself, heart, body, and soul into being in Africa and and became an African. I was, I was thinking about it, and it was I was, I was with uh, a number of uh, people who I'd consider friends from the ANC, and uh, we were at a dinner, and they kept on insisting on calling her comrade and me capitalist. So <laughs> I think she won and I lost. <laughs> when she passed away, it, as I say, almost five years ago, you naturally in a case like this would like to commemorate her life. And you, you started something which is really interesting. Now, maybe it's called the uh, Jennifer Ward Oppenheimer Research Grant. Yeah. Why this? So uh, our Gen- Jennifer's life really uh, could be sort of classified into a series of chapters. And her first chapter was an incredibly strong academic at school. Her second chapter was uh, this this extraordinary passion, particularly around Asia and learning to write and speak Chinese, superly well-educated, as I said, she was, I mean, interestingly, for those from from years, years back, she was, uh, she'd won a Fulbright scholarship to mainland China. And uh, it was announced... Uh, a week after Tiananmen Square. So she didn't go to mainland China. She ended up going to Hong Kong. But that was, that was her passion, that was her focus. Uh, then we met, uh, she fell in love with, with me, I hope, and we had this most extraordinary journey together. Came to Zimbabwe in the, in the mid-90s, spent four years in Zimbabwe, came down to here in 99. And there was, again, a wonderfully silly anecdotal story. She was always a little bit concerned about crime in South Africa. I think a lot of us are. And she said to me, early doors, you know, I, I love Zimbabwe, it's brilliant, it's a wonderful place, but going down to South Africa before we moved, a little bit dodgy. And so we arrived in 99 and I was looking at various options and uh, in, in the greater De Beers group there was an option to go and work in London. So I went back to her and I said, I've got this opportunity. She said, that's great, you can commute. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she truly embraced South Africa as, as home it she was a South African first, uh, a globalist second, I, I would say, and, and somewhere in between there was Africa as well. And uh, she just really, really embraced everything first and went through what was a really interesting journey. She, so she started by being obsessed around health and education, which I think is where a lot of us focus. And as she began to understand more deeply the challenges that face South Africa, or actually Africa, and then the, the world writ large, uh, the environment became an increasingly big part of her, 
her focus and her passion. And uh, over the last sort of five years of her life, we had tilted our private sort of philanthropic work more away from education, particularly towards ecology and sustainable ecology. And uh, it tied in very nicely with a lot of the work that the family had been doing in terms of the Oppenheimer Research uh, Conference, which has been going on for years. And uh, we, we really like to think that we truly tried to understand how you create a sustainable environment. It's not just research for the sake of research. It's not a pretty paper that's published in science. It's, it's work that can influence how you make a sustainable ecological system where man can exist and live for generations. And that was her passion. So when she died, she was just obsessed with this at the end. It seemed absolutely natural that we, we create this, this gift in memory which tried to celebrate the best sci- scientists in this ecological space that Africa had to produce. Obsessed because the scale of the challenge? I think obsessed. Uh, if you ever came to dinner at our house, the, the conversation was always about these are the huge challenges we face. And, and we see really two enormous challenges. And, and Jennifer was really focusing on the ecological one, which is captured in today's language by climate change. But it's so much more than climate change. Climate change is really the symptom of overconsumption of our, our ecology. And uh, there are all sorts of examples that I can pull uh, to, to describe the challenge. And she was passionate about really getting good science in that space. Again, this, this extraordinarily strong uh, mind that she had said, we have to actually put facts around this. We can't just sit and talk. We actually have to find solutions. And that's what she was about. And good science, I guess, means getting the right people to pay attention to it and investigate it, and hence your support of uh, Africa-focused studies at at both Cambridge and Harvard. Uh, Cambridge, Harvard, Oxford, um, internationally, but all pointing back to Africa in a really strong way. Uh, Huge support here, WITS, UCT, uh, some of the other universities, Stellenbosch increasingly, I mean, there's the the Oppenheimer Memorial Trust, which uh, supports people. I'm, for my, for my sins and with great pleasure, chairman of that at the moment. It cycles between our side of the family and, and my aunt's side of the family. And uh, the work that the OMT has done is just amazing. And you look at um, our alum of people who've got its ben- benefits from it, and it's, it's, it's the who's who of, of South Africa. And it really it makes you feel proud that you've had input into these people who are leading our country, good and bad, uh, in, into their education, into helping them become the people they are. And uh, she, Jennifer sat on the board of, of the OMT for 17 years. So that, she was instrumental in driving a lot of that. She was instrumental in when we were invested in De Beers and directing the De Beers Fund in how it engaged with the communities in a meaningful way. She took everything she did to to this incredibly professional, disciplined, but also loving and and, and heartfelt way. Space. It's an extraordinary story. Your your family has come under the cosh from all kinds of uh, politicians and people with vested interests, and yet you've got this incredible love for Africa. Uh, many others would have long gone, long departed, perhaps uh, focused their attention elsewhere. Where does it come from? I just know your father was the same, and indeed your grandfather uh, also. Is it it like in your DNA? 
<laughs> maybe the easiest answer would simply be to say it's in the DNA. I think it's a little bit more than that. Uh, if you believe in systems, and I'm a great believer in systems, Jennifer was a great believer in systems, when you contemplate a system, you can see the weak, weak points. And Africa is both the greatest opportunity the world faces and the greatest risk the world faces. And the reality, if you truly want something which is going to have a permanence rather than just a transitory moment in the sun, uh, you need to make sure that those weaknesses don't become catastrophes and crises. And focusing on Africa and making those, those opportunities, whether they're opportunities for disaster or opportunities for success, success is, is life-fulfilling. And that's what keeps on drawing us back to Africa is we can see the opportunities. We need to access them because if we don't, and other people don't, we really are going to cause the other, which is the disaster. And the disaster won't be an African disaster. It'll be a global disaster. You know, when you did the De Beers deal as a family, I spoke uh, through the intervention of your grandmother uh, with your father that evening. And he said it was on national radio. And he said, we're going to reinvest in Africa. Uh, has that been the case? Have you really focused your efforts here in, in supporting maybe investment opportunities on the continent, and, and then why? Uh, again, uh, well, I'll, 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 you will have heard it, and, and perhaps some of the listeners will as well, but my great-grandfather in 1954, and I was just looking at the statement this morning, said, we're here to make a profit. This was in the Anglo-American chairman's statement. We're here to make a profit, but in such a way as to benefit the peoples and communities of southern Africa. At the time, Anglo was predominantly focused on... That's way ahead of its time. Well, you think about triple bottom line. It's still, to my mind, the best descriptor of the triple bottom line, but I'm a little biased. It was my great-grandfather, after all. Uh, And as I look at that, and we've adapted that to to talk in terms of our our commercial endeavours to make a profit, but in such a way as to benefit the peoples and communities we touch, uh, to be more expansive, because we aren't exclusively in southern Africa... Uh, and as as we sit together, I created in twenty. We we set it up in twenty sixteen, so it's now seven years old. It's five years old, just just to, in its sixth year. Uh, an investment vehicle based out of um, uh, Jersey, but uh, managed really for, with the, the team who do all this research and everything here in Johannesburg. And uh, we've invested over five hundred million dollars in the continent. And there aren't that many people who can say that. And that's new money coming back into Africa. It isn't churning existing money. Uh, I was in Nigeria yesterday visiting one of our operations. And these operations aren't us investing and then never visiting. We want to own and operate these businesses alongside the local management. And it was a super exciting day, or two days, just incredible opportunities. Mm. Getting back to the uh, JWO research grant, it's now the third year. Uh, 2021 is the third year. Yeah. How, how many people enter it, or, or how do you get <laughs> them to... I knew you were going to ask me that, so I had to ask the experts. Um, so we've had over 700 applications over the three years, and, and last year uh, we had 254 accepted applications. So we had more applications. Some are a little bit like, where's the dustbin? Throw them away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... 254 credible applications uh, from across the continent. I think we had 27 countries apply. So it's, that's, that's pretty, pretty wide-reaching. And what do they send you? What is uh, 
but all sorts, but all about the environment. So interestingly, again, 2021 was the year of microplastics. I think the, this growing awareness of how truly, um, if you have apex predators, you might have apex harmers. Microplastics might be an apex harmer. Uh, and uh, so huge number of applications. I think over half the applications played with microplastics, mostly uh, in the oceans. And um, the, 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 the winner... Dr. Who, Gideon Ardubi. Gideon, I mean, you, you should meet Gideon. He, he, he's, the intensity he brings to, to the space is, is quite scary. I mean, he's, he's obsessed and obsessed in a wonderful, constructive, driven way, and the network he's built. It's just, it's phenomenal. And he's looking at microplastics not only in terms of uh, the oceans, where we know that they're catastrophic, but also in the freshwater systems, and then also what they're doing to the human body. And, uh, I mean, some of the stuff he's doing, and I'd have to, I need to read my notes because I can't remember half the, half the names of these things, but how it in affects the, your gut is just scary. It changes your hormones. Uh, I didn't know that. I don't think you knew that. Uh, and all of a sudden, people who are perfectly healthy no longer fertile or uh, start having all sorts of uh, sort of cancers and, and crazy things. I read Bill Bryson's book called The Body. Yeah, It's a fantastic book. It's, it's thick Dumbed down for people like me to understand it. And me. But, but every second page, it was, well, we don't know what that means, and we don't understand that. So there's so much about yep. the human body that is unknown to, to discover exactly. the impact of, of what you just said with microplastics. Yep. So what exactly does he win? So the, the, the grant is 150,000 US dollars, and it can be dispersed in, a, in, in chunks up to a, a period of three years. And so we, ha we award this grant every year. And right now, so that we've got three recipients. Uh, so the first was, was a wonderful woman. She's becoming something of a celebrity, is Haley Clements. And she was, uh, and her research, her area of focus was on, on biodiversity and biodiversity mapping. Critical if we're going to know what's happening in the environment. I mean, it's, it's up there again in terms of this is, sh I can't swear, can I? This is bleep that you have to know about. Mm. And she's doing some of the leading work of that in the world, particularly in Africa, which has some of the widest, greatest biodiversity and needs to preserve its biodiversity more than anywhere else. And then the second guy, uh, who was equally amazing, is doing unbelievable work on malaria. And a crazy, crazy intervention in terms of malaria, because what he's done is he's figured out that light and particularly the frequency of light, mm -hmm. affects whether Anopheles mosquito is attracted to something. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all knew moths are attracted to a light. But did you know that Anopheles is not as attracted to yellow light? So change the light bulbs in the houses of Africa, and you change the attractiveness of the house to Anopheles mosquitoes, and you could, we don't know yet, dramatically reduce the propagation of, of malaria across the continent. Not by, I mean, I love the work that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation are doing on, on, on vaccines and malaria vaccines, and it's, it's groundbreaking, and they're throwing hundreds of millions of dollars at it, and it's brilliant. But just change a light bulb. Really? 
and we can have an effect which is even greater than maybe the efficacy of the of the malaria vaccine. So that $150,000 research grant is to help them complete Focus a, a research program okay. that they have basically um, pitched for. That's what that's what the applications are, are pitches for that $150,000. So they don't have to go and do any other work. They know that they're going to they're be able to focus on their, on their obsession. Yeah. And the consequence thereof could be, as you say, changing light bulbs in malaria-affected areas, uh, as simple as that, but making a, a very big difference. And it's crazy. I mean, wow is what I end up saying. Do you think Jennifer would have been bucked by uh, what's happened in her name? Yeah. I think she'd be incredibly proud. I mean, we we were tilting towards this already, and I, and I I suspect if we'd said, let's do this, she wouldn't have wanted to call it under her name because she was always for a, as you as you started describing hiding her light under a bushel, but she would have been passionate about the project and passionate about the work that's being done. Do you think that her passing changed you into becoming more focused in this area because? We've met over the years, and you were very involved in business. It was it was a lot. I won't say all business, but I'm sure a, a, a bigger chunk of your life. Have you had to change a little in that way? It's a it's a very good question. No. Uh, so here, a shout out to my mother, Alan Savory, is a Zimbabwean vet uh, who was uh, who developed a farming method which used what is called biomimicry, which is where you look at what nature did and then you try and mimic it in a in a commercial fashion. And it produces all sorts of good things. And the idea of, of Alan Savory's method is you create bigger herds of cattle. Mm. They then act like the bulk grazers of the, the past. You herd them in a tight bunch. That was the predators. The effect of that is they break the soil, so the water retention goes up. They defecate on the soil. That improves its nutrition. You get a much better diversity of, of grass that grows, which improves the nutritional yield, which makes the cattle health healthier. It's a, it's a wonderful virtuous circle. My mother was championing Alan's methods before Alan knew. Mm. And up in Zimbabwe, where the, the families had a cattle ranch for many years, we we're experimenting with this now, and we're really getting some pretty exciting results. That has been at the forefront of what the family was about for you know, 30, 40 years, longer. The family were lucky enough to, I uh, don't want to call it full, have the opportunity to take on the custodianship of Swalu, this big nature reserve in, in the Northern Cape. And uh, the work that we've been doing at Swalu, again, somewhat hidden in terms of real meaningful work that can help manage ecological environments is truly groundbreaking. We've got a research... The family have a research facility at Swalu. We have a research facility uh, just out near um, uh, out just beyond Bronkelspate out here on, on a farm we have. We have a research facility at Changani in Zimbabwe. We have a research facility in the, in the foothills of the Drakensberg in, in KZN. Um, these places, which uh, Duncan McFadden, who, who looks after these things for us, Overseas and, and allocates money to are all and have all been doing huge work in the conservation space for 10, 15 years. And the Oppenheimer Research Conference has been going for, I'll get it wrong, more than 10 years. That way I'll get it right. Uh, so, no, this isn't, this isn't new. I, I, think what we're, I think what Jennifer Dine did for me is it pushed me to be more vocal about it, more public about it. For, I always felt that 
as a family, we wanted to have the proof points before we talked about something. So I wanted to be able to say, hey, we have a sustainable business here. We're creating lots of employment. Mimic us, and you can do the same. Uh, we've got all these great ideas. We'll share them with you, but we don't want to share them when they're just concepts on the wall. We want to share them when they're practical, lived experiences, and we can go and show you those experiences. And a, co- a convert. A convergence of, of Jennifer dying and the fact that our research is, is, is more substantive now, it is there, has allowed us to be much more vocal about it. And are they? Are people following you? I don't know, is the answer. Most probably not nearly as much as I would like. Um, you know, I, th- I think uh, taking a generational view is, is an outlying view in, this, in the 21st century. It seems that you know, most millennials and Zs Generation Zs or Zs or whatever you call them are, are what, super interested in what happens next week, not what happens in 10 years' time. Although there does seem to be a growing awareness of that. Certainly when I talk to, to people when I, I'm abroad, I get the strong idea that, that there is a community that's growing rapidly that are saying, hang on, we really do need to think about not tomorrow, not next month, next year, but next decade, next century. And that's, that's really exciting because it, feels like we're swimming with the tide rather than against the tide. And so, there's so many estimates on the arable land in Africa that's being properly utilized or utilized at all. From what your research is showing you and from what we've been discussing today, isn't that a great opportunity to maybe be the, the real breadbasket of good food for the, for the world? Of course, but, and, but there is a big but. And the big but is the real experience of big commercial agriculture in the West and in South America is throwing up some really bad data right now. You know, big monocrops, you know, the, the wheat belt, the, 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 the grain belt of America and what's happening with, with huge monocrops and the desperate use of fertilizer and... And, and is, again, encouraging people to hark back to trying to find biomimicry tools. I'm not in any way saying we have to go back to oxen and, and plows shares. That, that's stupid. But if you think about mixed systems which are synergistic and, and supportive of one another, those endeavors are so much more powerful, so much more resilient and I think resilience is the key thing in this, in this changing world that we're in. And, and yes, we can begin to do that. But critically, it can't just be around agriculture or wilderness preservation. It needs to be integrated into the well-being of people. Because if you don't have people who have constant to improving well-being, they don't want to play in the game. I mean, again, at the office, we often talk about in a world where people's well-being is improving, they follow the rules because the rules are benefiting them. If you if you wake up in the morning and you are rules abiding, and at the end of the day you're richer than you were at the beginning of the day, you're going to continue to follow the rules. If you wake up in the morning and you're poor at the end of the day, why do you follow the rules? And when you believe that's systemic, what incentive do you have to pay, obey any rule? And that's what we see as, as a global trend is where people's income, particularly in the urban areas, is declining. The propensity to social unrest is growing. The propensity to, to collapse in the rule of law is growing. 
And the direct opposite is also true, where we see wellness disposable income in the urban areas growing, we see people being more law-abiding and more supportive of, of the, the regime they're in. I know where I want to be. I want to be over here, but I also want to be over here in a way that ensures that we've got an eco- ecology and an ecosystem that's going to be here a 1,000 years from now. Right now, globally, millennials and Zs, they've got, to, on, on blended basis, have got declining disposable income. So we're, we're failing on this side of the equation. Over here... And the ecology, the world is now saying, all our scientists are saying, we're over-consuming the world. It's, it's not able to recover at the rate at which we're consuming. So we've got a simultaneous equation, and both sides of the simultaneous equation fail. We have to get ourselves into a place where both sides of that simultaneous equation ba- solve. Well-being needs to be growing, and we need to consume the environment less. How do you do that? And that's the challenge. If we can find a way to do that, if we can cause investment to flow to renewable technology, to new energy sources, to, to the creation of ecologically sustainable goods and services for people, that's exciting. And yet what is happening is globally, actually less and less money is going to innovation, to transformation, to greening the economy, and more and more money is just going to transactional activities that are zooming around in the stock market. That's a, that's a bad equation for me. It doesn't solve. And so part of the challenge is you've got to have the science to know what, how to consume the world in a sustainable way, and we need to find ways to create additional goods and services for this huge population, particularly in Africa, come back to why Africa is so important, who have to be improving their well-being. And it's not by saying, oh, there, there, you guys can actually have less because everybody has to have less. It doesn't work like that. Most of these guys are on $2 a day. They can't afford to have less. They have less, they die. And dying isn't an option. It's a, it's a complex and a fascinating area. But I guess to, to start with, you need to understand and know, Got to and hence the, the education and hence the science. Jonathan, good talking with you. Before we finish, though, your, your aunt's been doing interesting things here in South Africa. I'm talking about Mary yes. Slack uh, with rescuing horse racing. Uh, is that's something that you, your branch of the family is not ever really been interested in. I, I can't remember who it was, but somebody said, anything that eats while you sleep, don't invest in. But I, am, I invest in cattle lately. But uh, no, I, I mean, she's, she really loves that side of those, those sorts of things. And I, it's so exciting to, you know, anything that keeps industry going and supports, I, I'm grateful for. And, uh, you know, Mary and, 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 her, and her daughters have done amazing stuff and continue to do amazing stuff. And I, I now look at them sort of as a, as a wonderfully interested third-party observer. Maybe a little bit closer than third-party, but, it's, but it's, a, it's, a really nice, it's a really nice thing to, to see them shaping their, their world and doing their own thing. And it's all long-term. And I, again, I get back to this thing maybe as a final point, that that you are thinking long-term, and yet there are so many South Africans who can't see beyond next year or the year thereafter and hence are packing for Perth or London or wherever else it might be. All they're doing is they're, they're winning themselves another 10 to 20 years. If we don't fix Africa, the rest of the world will be doomed too. <laughs>